The Double K Super Show, Episode 12, Freddy Does Dixieland. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Mercury Rising. I'm Mark Kozorowski, a.k.a. Only in Seven Days. Today we're going to talk about an album by Queen, but it's not the album that you might think we'd talk about. A lot of people would discuss Night at the Opera, Sheer Heart Attack, News of the World, The Game, The Works, but we're going to discuss an album that kind of divides Queen fans. Not quite as divisive as, say, maybe Hot Space, but an album that divides them nevertheless, and that album is Jazz. Yeah, Jazz is the follow-up to News of the World, of course, which, according to multiple sources, is their best-selling studio album which is surprising because I always would have thought Day at the Race, um, not the opera, would have been their bestseller. But according to sources, News of the World is topping off at $4 million, quadruple platinum. Um, jazz is somewhere around the double platinum level. So financially, at least, it was a semi-disappointing follow-up, if you can call a double platinum album disappointing in, in any sense, sense of the word. Right, but that sales figure, now is that for the U.S.? Four million, uh, news of the world is four million quadruple platinum in America, ten million globally, whereas it just says that worldwide sales of jazz are five million. That tells me the U.S. is probably half of that to where it would sit around double platinum level. Well, that's not too shabby, you know, over time, considering that the time was considered a disappointment um, sales-wise, and I think... Artistically speaking, Jazz was released on November 10, 1978 on Electra Records here in the United States, and it's somewhat significant because this album marked the return of producer Roy Thomas Baker. He co-produced the record with Queen. He hadn't produced the previous two albums, News of the World and Day at the Races, which had been produced by Queen and their engineer Mike Stone, who coincidentally worked on those early albums with Roy Thomas Baker. And of course, by early albums, I'm talking about Queen, Queen 2, Sheer Heart Attack, and Night at the Opera. The, uh, the production quality is a little bit hearkening back to um, early 70s Queen, although there's still, a great, there's still a great deal of overdubbing and a lot of bombast, which is sort of associated with their later 70s period. Um, this album could be called the sort of the, the crowning effort of their 70s, um, whatever you want to call it, their 70s um, sound. Well, I think for me, the crowning achievement of their 70s sound would be probably Night at the Opera or Sheer Heart Attack. I think those records were really the ones that where Queen arrived and had, you know, utilized that multi-track sound and the the sheer inventiveness is the, of the studio. I mean, they were not only inventive as musicians, but they were said to have used the studio as an instrument, you know, working with Murray Thomas Baker to multi-track vocals and different sounds and different types of song ideas. I mean, you know, some of their songs were just fragments. Well, that's true. But I, I do think that jazz represents the furthest manifestation of that 70s sound. It's the one where... Sonically, at least, jazz is probably the best-sounding Queen release of the 70s, and it's interesting that they perfect the formula right at the exact moment where they then discard it, because the following album, Game, sounds nothing like this. Right, and uh, part of the reason 
this is my third favorite Queen album after, you know, Night at the Opera and Sheer Heart Attack. I think most people would say, oh, Day of the Races or News of the World or, you know, Queen 2. But for me, it's always been jazz. What it does is it takes the, the sound that they perfected on the first four albums and cleans it up a little bit. It's a little more, it's a little less cluttered sonically. It still has the multi-tracked vocals and sound effects. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a summing up, uh, putting everything in order, almost like setting it on a shelf. Because, I mean, after this album, you know, multi-track opuses like Bicycle Race become much fewer and further in between. They, they don't really come back to the picture until the finale, Innuendo, which is 12 or 13 years in the future. This is, like I said, this is the final Queen album of the 70s. It's the end of an era, and, you know, like you said, when they do the game, things are going to change. I mean, previous albums, at least the first four, had a, you know, no synthesizers declaration on them, and the next album would have lots of synthesizers. The interesting thing is they switched to synthesizers at the exact time that they, they got more sparing arrangements. You know, songs like Dragon Attack are much leaner sonic-wise than pretty much anything on this jazz album. The the arrangements are much more basic and almost more sort of club-oriented. My first exposure to Queen was listening to the Live Killers album in uh, the summer of 79. A local radio station, WCGY, was playing it in its entirety at midnight. They, they used to do that. So I heard it, but the following year, was when the, in 1980, was when the game came out. And that's when I really, really became aware of Queen, you know. And of course, 1979 is interesting because Crazy Little Thing Called Love had been issued in late 79 as a standalone single. And then several months later in 1980, it came out on the game. Yeah, that was around the time of my first exposure to Queen also uh, between the game and the first greatest hits compilation that had um, Under Pressure on it. Which, even though Under Pressure is included on Greatest Hits, it's also on Hot Space. Yeah, I think they tacked it on there just to to sell it because you know Hot Space. Well, that's an album. That's an even more controversial album. But but getting back to jazz, you mentioned the first Queen Greatest Hits album, and the first Queen Greatest Hits album from 1981 has uh, liner notes for each track, and it made a reference on either Fat Bottom Girls or Bicycle Race to the fact that. Jazz was a European-flavored album, and I didn't understand what that meant at the time. I didn't really get what it meant. Years later, I, I, now that I listen to it, I can kind of hear the varied influences on it. Queen, by this point, had joined the ranks of the Rolling Stones and you know, pretty much every other top-level English group in becoming tax exiles. So, of course, all of their albums from this point forward are recorded in France, Germany, Switzerland, and the like. So along that way, of course, they're bound to pick up a lot of, you know, continental influences from the radio. And and there is a lot of, like, sort of French-sounding pop, especially in ballads. You can almost picture an accordion some places, and they do have that sort of, like, very 70s... <laughs> The kind of stuff that you hear playing in the background in, in, in Pink Panther movies, you know. You mentioned that they were tax exiles, and for that reason, this album was recorded in Nice, France, at Super Bear Studios, and Mountain Studios in Montreux, Switzerland, which would end up becoming Queen's own studio a few years later. 
Yeah, Super Bear um, is a place where Pink Floyd recorded a lot of their 70s albums. And I think it's partly where uh, Super Tramp recorded also uh, parts of Breakfast in America. So Super Bear is one of those those very famous, you know, 70s sort of tax exile millionaire studios, along with, you know, Polar owned by ABBA and um, Air Studio owned by George Martin, etc., and if you bought the original double album and you opened up the gatefold, there's this really cool black and white picture of them. If you get the original, if you have the original vinyl album and you opened up the gatefold sleeve, in the center there's a picture of them, either in the studio or at a rehearsal hall. If it's a studio, it's a massive studio because on on the left you've got John Deacon standing up by a piano. To his right you've got Freddie Mercury lying on top of a piano. Then you have Roger Taylor sitting to the left of his drum set, just, you know, seemingly laid back and, I don't know, maybe he's having some tea. And then to the right of the drum set, you see Brian May kind of waving, probably to the photographer. And it's just one of those things that, when you look at it on a CD booklet, it's not quite as dynamic. Yeah, you picture they were probably in a studio, they might have been in a studio that was mostly recorded, reserved for orchestral recordings. Because that's the other thing about this album is it does have sort of a, a somewhat hollow, reverb-heavy sound to it, which suggests that they might have recorded in a very large space that, that might have normally been reserved for orchestras. Right, and there's a credit on the inner sleeve, I'm sorry, on the, the gatefold sleeve that says, Thunderbolt Courtesy of God. And apparently there was a very nasty thunderstorm in France one night, and they took a portable tape recorder brought the mic outside and that and and that sound effect ended up on the song dead on time yeah that that huge thunderbolt crash that comes in as sort of a crescendo you can't make that stuff up no it's not a sample it's it's something that actually happened they couldn't just you know cue it up on a black box or a synthesizer especially because they weren't using synthesizers yeah and there were no samplers then either done with mirrors well, actually, done with mirrors is Aerosmith, but I get what you're, I get what you're getting at. <laughs> See how we reference other bands on this show? Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's terrible. Anyway, this album is also significant in that it has a lot of songs on it. There's 13 tracks in total spread out over two sides. Yeah, it's kind of... A lot of them are sort of like not fully fleshed out, fully realized songs. Some of them, I think, are kind of meant as like interludes between the larger featured numbers. Uh, stuff like, you know, Only Seven Days or Leaving Home Ain't Easy. They're, they're not what I would call, like, you know, A-side material in the sense of a fully formed independent song. They're kind of more meant to be there as a transition point between, you know, the the obvious, you know, single numbers. Well, that's, you know, that's a throwback to, like, earlier, their earlier albums with Roy Thomas Baker, where they would just do little interludes like Bring Back Leroy Brown. So it, it does have that kind of, like, beatle Sergeant Pepper, White Album kind of feel to it. And it it's, it's by no means a jazz album. There really is no jazz included. But there is a little bit of, like, French pop and a little bit of, you know, English music hall sensibility. And, of course, there's quite a bit of opera. Of course. And and there's even some 
Arabic influence on the track Mustafa, which is the op- which is the opener. And it's just Freddie. It originally just begins with Freddie, you know, singing Allah, la la. You know, he sings most of the verses in Arabic, but the, there is some English thrown in there as well. And it's just one of those things that I don't know exactly what he's saying, but it sounds good because it's Freddie. Yeah, you know, Freddie, of course, is probably hearkening back to his Persian roots in Zanzibar and, and whatnot. It could just be a throwback to that. Um, yeah, I've never seen a translation of the lyrics, but knowing Freddie, it's probably this sort of like stream of consciousness. But it's, it's again, because it's Freddie, it just sounds so good. And that song is interesting because when it starts off, it's just him doing the vocal. Then it's just kind of drums and piano and some sound effects. And then all of a sudden, you know, the bass kicks in and it becomes this heavy, heavy song. Yeah, it's definitely one of the rockers of the album. And of course, that leads straight into, if not the most famous song on this album, definitely in the top two or three, which is Fat Bottom Girls. And, you know, that song, if that were released today, it probably, it would probably be banned or people would protest it. But the funny thing about it, though, is what was considered to be fat-bottomed girls back then, they weren't fat-bottomed. No, there was definitely no BBW designation in those days. It, it kind of, I don't know if you remember the old song by Fats Domino, they call me the fat man because I weigh 200 pounds. 200 pounds is basically medium size these days. Hearing it on the jazz album for the first time, this, it was the first time that I ever heard the full version of it. I was used to the single edit from the greatest hits. I didn't hear, get the jazz album until sometime in the 80s at a mall in a cutout bin. And hearing the fact that you know the, the single edit fades out, whereas the album version actually jams out and then has an ending where it goes, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, the the single is probably about a full minute shorter than the album version. And it has one of um, Fat Bottom Girls is written by Roger Taylor, I think. No, Brian May. Yeah, I was going to say, because it has one of Brian May's like best all-time riffs. You know, that... It's one of his most Led Zeppelin-style riffs, I would think. And you know, that, that reminds me, we, we probably should have gone over who the members of Queen are. All right, well, for anybody who's been living under a under a Brighton rock for the past 40 years. Uh, we've got Freddie Mercury on the vocals, um, the Persian man from Zanzibar, the great pretender himself. Uh, we have on lead guitar astrophysicist Brian May, he of the curly locks. On the drums, we have Roger Taylor. He's blonde and bitchy. <laughs> And on the bass, we have the uh, the stoical John Deacon. Right. And one of the things I wanted to mention before we go f- through this, or resume going through this, is that Queen is kind of unique in that each member of the band has made significant songwriting contributions to the band. And in fact, each member of the band is responsible for a major hit single in the band's history. That's true. Um Freddie Mercury in interviews always disputed the fact that people wanted to call him the leader of the group. The fact of the matter is Queen was actually one of the most democratically structured groups that that ever existed. There really was no clear leader, and they butted heads constantly. 
but the results speak for themselves. As you said, each one of them has contributed a major hit to the catalog. It's interesting that, you know, you were just saying, you, I think you, you thought Fat Bottom Girls are the Roger Taylor song, but it's not. And it always, it bugs me when people say that Queen was Freddie, because like you said, it was a very democ- democratically structured group, and each member contributed very significantly, like we'd said. Yeah, um, they do each have, like, signature styles, of course. Freddie brings piano ballads, little interludes. He also brings, of course, big, bombastic operatic productions. Brian May brings, you know, the Zepp-style riff rockers to the table. John Deacon brings the funk. John Deacon was responsible for another one, Bites the Dust, uh, Dragon Attack. I think John Deacon had a lot to do with the switch in emphasis to the 80s sound because it seems like he was writing the most forward-looking material at that point. Yeah, you're right. And he was probably the least prolific member of Queen in terms of songwriting contributions, but his stuff was big. I mean, he wrote You're My Best Friend. He wrote another one, Bites the Dust. On this album, he wrote If You Can't Beat Them. So it's 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 almost hard to pigeonhole sometimes who the author of a song was because you just assume Freddie wrote this or Brian wrote that. And then you have Roger Taylor, and Roger Taylor tends to contribute the the oddball tracks, what I call the oddball tracks. And on you know this album he does a song called Fun It where he's really getting into electronic drums, probably Simmons drums. Yeah, the famous Simmons disco drums. Let's jump back to the track, the song Jealousy, which, of course, was a epic Freddie ballad that sounds that has sounds like a sitar. But apparently it's not really a sitar. It's really Brian May doing some some effects with his guitar. And this is definitely where I can hear more of a European vibe, although it, when you say sitar, that's really more of a. Indian thing or a Hindu thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a mix. I think if that sitara like effect wasn't there, it would so it would almost be more of sort of like a uh, who was that famous French composer like you know feelings that kind of thing. It's almost like the kind of song that you would hear you know coming out of the loudspeaker at a at a French sidewalk cafe. I'm gonna have to defer to you on that one because I really am not sure what you're referring to. <laughs> It has, it has that sort of, like, Parisian flavor to it. And that would lead us into the song Bicycle Race, because apparently that was inspired by Freddie Mercury looking out his hotel window and seeing the Tour de France. Unless you grew up in the 70s or, or studied history, it has a plethora of 70s references. Vietnam, you know, 60s, 70s references. Vietnam, Watergate, John Wayne, cocaine, Star Wars... Yeah, it's kind of, it's almost like the We Didn't Start the Fire of it, Sarah. It's it's not quite the history lesson that the Billy Joel song would end up being. One of the most uh, notorious videos ever made. Ah, uh, yes, the nude bicycle race. Yeah. <laughs> and Good if you, times. Yeah, and if you... If not you the most... I was going to say, again, not the most uh, politically correct move that you could possibly make. Although it's interesting, you know, we've tagged them twice on PC issues. On the other hand, this album also contains the most affirmative and positive, you know, millennial anthem that could ever be. 
which we'll get to um, near the very end of this record. If you bought the original vinyl album and you were lucky enough, you got a poster of the nude bicycle race. Yeah. How they didn't get thrown out of stores for that, we'll never know, but good on them. Well, apparently some retailers refused to carry it unless they took the poster out. Now, like I said before, I didn't buy this album until several years later. I bought it in a cutout bin at a mall store. And for those of you who may not understand the reference cutout bin, there was a practice back in the 70s and the 80s when records were either discontinued or they had too many of them. They would cut out a corner of the cover, of the album cover, which was, you know, was cardboard and they would sell them for about half you know half price or lower than that so if you were a kid who in the 70s or the 80s and you didn't have a lot of money you always went to the cutout bin of your local department store or record store to see what they had and i by pure luck i you know bought this at a like i said i bought this at a mall store and when i got my copy it had the nude bicycle race poster right in there i wasn't Uh i was quite happy with that Many millions of teenage boys were, that's for sure. And it's interesting, too, because I was watching, in preparation for this, I was watching some Queen videos, and I saw some outtake footage of the when they shot the nude bicycle race. And what's interesting is that one of the girls, she's smoking a cigarette, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I hope the ash doesn't, you know, hope the, well, you know, you know what I'm going with this. Doesn't land in the wrong place. Right, right. But yeah, that would cause an uproar today. You could get away with a lot in the 70s, although, like I said, I, I think that did cause some controversy with in some parts of the country. Yeah, the, the Bible Belt would always have issues with such things. Okay, so the next song is um, If You Can't Beat Them, which is not really one of my favorites on this record. It's a little bit just kind of there, I think. It's kind of filling up space. I get the tunnel sentiment behind it, but it's, it's not one that I really have much for, I can't say. Well, the funny thing is, is it's written by John Deacon, and this is one instance where, you know, John Deacon, you know, contributed a couple of songs to the album. Maybe at this point he just didn't have a song that was on a par with, you know, his previous stuff. I think it's an okay song myself. I like it. But the thing is, it's 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 not it's if you can't beat them, join them. But it's also really a reference to, I guess, some a former manager of theirs. And you know, when Freddie Mercury, you know, screams out, "It's everyone for themselves," it's kind of telling. It's kind of almost like just getting sort of a personal thing off their chest, kind of like an not exactly an in joke, but just sort of like a a pointed commentary at somebody who knows who they are. Which leads us to, let me entertain you. <laughs> Queen's version is a little bit heavier than that. This is a good, really great song, and it's Freddie Mercury wanting to sell you some good merchandise, and he'll pull you, and he'll pill you, and Cruella de Vil you. That's true. They definitely do bring a bit of womp to it. It's, uh, it's campy as hell, but it's fun. In all fairness, I actually prefer the version that appears on the Live Killers album from 1979. It's a it's a lot heavier and a little more bombastic. It's it's one of the you know few instances where I prefer the live version to the studio version. And what's interesting too is that you know it's it's not only just Freddie Mercury selling himself to the audience. It's also you know kind of tongue in cheek in terms of the 
sexual aspect of it where he's saying, you know, I can show you some good merchandise. And he also throws in a reference to Elektra and EMI, which were their record companies at that point. So that's kind of fun, too. Yeah, it's kind of just laying all his cards on the table and saying, you know, this is who I am. This is what I can offer you. Don't look too deeply into this. This is what I'm willing to show you. It it has that sort of like, you know, what you think is almost an expose, but it's really just sort of a careful like smokescreen. But he looks so and sounds so good doing it. Right. And this was the song that in the at least for the next couple of tours would be the second song after the fast version of We Will Rock You. I was reading up to I was doing some research. I was reading this book on Queen called The Complete Works. And the guy who wrote the book felt that Let Me Entertain You would have been better off as the opening track of this album. Kind of get that vibe. But then again, you know, the acapella, Mustafa kind of, eh, I kind of like Mustafa better as an opening track. And with Freddie's voice, that one thing, and then slowly pile on all the other elements almost like, you know, rags to riches, sort of. It has more, that's more in line with, like, Queen's philosophy, you know, building a house of cards, so to speak. Again, another interesting analogy from you, Mark. Yeah, whereas Let Me Entertain You, I, I almost picture Let Me Entertain You being an excellent opener for uh, Freddie's solo album, Mr. Bad Guy. Yeah, but if it had appeared on Mr. Bad Guy, it would have been synth-pop disco. Or synth-pop dance music. I was going to say Mr. Bad Guy is kind of Freddy's almost like automatic response to Thriller. Uh, But that's an episode for another time. Because meanwhile, we need to be dead on time. Right. Dead on time is the opening track of Side 2, if you had the original vinyl album. And apparently this is about, you know, a guy trying to get somewhere. And he's so caught up in getting to where he needs to go that he dies he makes it on time but he's dead on time it's a very driving song it's it's written by brian may and of course it's a song that i put on many playlists yeah it's kind of um it's kind of a predecessor to a song like headlong it has the same kind of feel to it uh this almost the same kind of rhythm to it it's very uh it's, it's very riffy and the message is kind of ironic and it's a good, it's a good uh, side, op- it's a good side opener. Yes, back in the days when we had things like side openers, and I think we, I don't know if we talked about this on previous episodes, but when I hear, when I listen to stuff on CD or online, I still hear it in terms of side one and side two. Yeah, if you were old enough to have the album on vinyl or, or cassette, you know, you, you do remember the transition, the song, the song ending the side the needle picking up automatically off the record and there being that transition point of 30 seconds or however long it took you to get up and and switch the record over. Yeah, and I think as a result of that, when we listened to albums back then, we actually listened to albums because getting up and having to, you'd have to lift the needle to go to the next song and you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to drop it in the wrong place or you didn't want to damage your needle. So so it it was definitely, I think album listening back then you listen more intently and it was kind of the, it could also be the backdrop to be many conversations that i'd have with you know friends or my cousin or you know whatever yeah a lot of this album is really good 
I don't want to disparage the sound. I don't want to sound disparaging in any way, but a lot of this really does make for excellent background music. Right, and you know, back then, you know, we didn't all have our individual headsets or our individual earbuds. You know, sometimes you'd have a, a set of over-the-ear headphones, but generally speaking, yeah, it was just it was good background music. Better background music than a lot of other records, that's for sure. Yeah, this is one of. And, and it's almost kind of like consciously designed that way. I mean, Freddie Mercury had that famous summation of, of his musical philosophy where he talks about Queen being, you know, disposable pop. And he meant that you got an immediate impression from the song, an immediate rush. It summed up, you know, the mood of the moment. And if you didn't agree with it, you could quickly just discard it and move on to the next. I was going to say, the album definitely does have that episodic quality to it. I mean, this isn't like, say, Night at the Opera or Sheer Heart Attack, where there's kind of a structure to it, or a seeming structure to it. It does seem more like a collection of, like, 13 individual, like, vignettes, almost. Although, like um, Night at the Opera, there's not a lot of, like, lengthy transitions between the songs. Some of them do kind of run into each other. And, you know, that was because, you know, when you had to sequence a vinyl album, you you only had, you know, roughly 40 minutes to work with. I mean, some bands did a little more than that, but you had to, you wanted to sequence fairly tightly, and you had to sequence according to the limitations of vinyl. You know, like I said, 20 minutes per side. So it was very key which songs open and close the side, and which songs were the songs that were, you know, down the middle of the record. It was all done in only seven days. <laughs> well, I think it was. I think it took a little longer than that, but yes, it, it. The song, the next song, is in only seven days, which surprisingly is written by John Deacon. I would have definitely pegged this as a as a Freddie song. In fact, you know, checking the credits, like, wait a minute, Freddie didn't write this. This is this sounds like something that would be right up his alley. It does have that kind of quality to it. Uh, Freddie does have a really sort of plaintive kind of vocal. The the lyrics the lyrics are definitely Freddie style, and the 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 whole overall vibe of the piece is is definitely like it's definitely Freddie ish rather than anything else, but it, it's definitely the best Freddie impersonation that's ever been written. <laughs> yeah, and that's again the individual members of Queen could write songs that you know other members would sing, and. You know, the thing was, John Deacon was not a singer. I don't think John Deacon ever even sang a background vocal. I mean, he's seen in some of the videos miming, but I don't believe he did a lot of singing, if if any at all, really. No, I don't think he. I don't think he even any of his solo albums have ever featured him singing. I think he's always had other singers hired for the job. Well, that would be interesting because John Deacon's never had a solo album, but. <laughs> John, yeah, John Deacon is the one only member who doesn't have solo albums. In fact, he's the only member who's retired. Yeah, once he retired, he's he's out of the scene. He hasn't been seen in any of the Queen documentaries or, you know, I don't think he's spoken. I don't know if he's done any interviews since probably the early 2000s. Now, I think he's definitely happy to pick up his royalty checks and call it a day. Unless, of course, he's been spending all his time at the Dreamer's Ball. <laughs> now, this is a song 
that's not extremely European. It sounds more like New Orleans jazz. But from what I read, apparently at the Montreux Jazz Festival, Brian May may have seen a band doing a song that was similar to this. So that's why he wrote it. Yeah, it does have sort of that kind of not modern jazz, but like sort of Dixieland kind of feel to it. It's the closest thing to actual jazz on this record. Queen was a band that performed different types of music on the same record, and this this record is no exception. There definitely are, you know, a wide variety of musical styles. And like I said, this is... The most I can say about this one is it, it is the closest thing to actual jazz on an album called Jazz. Again, it's not one of my favorites, but it has place and it sounds nice while it's on. Well, even on a 40-minute album, you know, 40-minute albums are tighter. You, you know, like I said, you still have to have those tracks that are, you know, quote-unquote filler tracks. Or I don't know if I, I wouldn't call this an interlude, but. All albums, even the ones that were 40 minutes or less, had their filler tracks. And if this has to be a filler track, then so be it. Fair enough. Of course, it leads right into the fun that we have with Fun It. Yeah, this is definitely a novelty track. And Roger Taylor would always contribute, I may have said this earlier in the episode, he would always contribute an oddball track or two to each record. Roger Taylor was not only a drummer, but he could actually play bass and guitar. And he wrote these songs on the, you know, on guitar and bass. He wasn't, uh, you know, coming in with an idea and then having Brian May ghostwrite the music for him. And Roger Taylor, you know, towards the end of Queen's tenure and beyond, he's recorded several solo albums and albums with his own group, which is called The Cross. Yeah, he's he's done a bunch of solo albums. I actually had one of them, um, which I won off a contest, a radio station contest, WMM. WMMR in Philadelphia. It was actually an EP that was called Fun in Space. And it is filled with basically uh, oddball, very uncommercial, whatever you call them. Almost like Dr. Demento type novelty tunes. I actually had the 45 of Let's Get Crazy. I think that came out around 80 or 81. And eventually I did get this, I did see the CD of Fun in Space and I've probably listened to it maybe once or twice. But it's kind of cool that you won the album, so it must have been pretty neat to have gotten that record. Yeah, you know, you can't argue with free. But yeah, it, it is a very, uh, you know, one listen. But the crowning novelty of this whole situation with winning that EP was I got the picture disc. Oh, nice. It's an unlistenable record anyway. You, you slice it, but it's nice to have. Yeah, and like I said before, he's experimenting. You know, he's he's using the um, Simmons electronic drums on this, and he's singing most of the song. But Freddie is also singing as well. And one thing that I think gets forgotten is Roger Taylor can actually hit some really high notes with his voice. On a lot of these records, a lot of what you're hearing in the background is Roger Taylor kind of screaming or shrieking. Yeah, Roger, I think actually had the had the highest vocal range of any of the four members. He didn't necessarily have the strongest voice, but I think he could hit the highest notes. So a lot of like those super almost soprano falsetto notes that people think are Freddie are, are, as you say, probably Roger. 
Right, and this you know bears to what I said before about Queen being you know equal parts of all the four members. I mean, you you couldn't have you know Freddie obviously wrote more commercial material and had a operatic range, but you know that's only that can that can only carry the band so far. Yeah, you have to have Brian May with the hard rock riffs, you know, to give it like some rock and roll credibility. You have Deacon and Taylor as a rock solid rhythm section. And then you have, you know, Deacon coming in with the funky bass. You have Roger Taylor coming in with sort of the off the wall, sort of like, you know, novelty fun songs. So each of them brings a different flavor to the equation. That's part of what made Queen the band it was. And that's why their music endures, as far as I'm concerned. That's true. It's hard to let go of a group like Queen. You know, they, they say that leaving home ain't easy. This is one that's actually written by Brian May, and it's sung by Brian May. You know, a lot of people, again, Brian May did sing on many of their songs, including um, this one. Yeah, his voice is... Obviously, Freddy has the strongest voice, but Brian Bay does have a, a pleasingly uh, acceptable voice. He's not bad. And I don't know if I would rate him as the front man of, a, of his own group had Freddy never appeared, but his voice now and again, you know, it's perfectly fine. Brian May not only had a unique guitar sound, but he had a unique guitar. His signature guitar, which is called the Red Special, was built by him and his dad back in the 60s, before Queen even existed. I don't know if you play that on this song, but you know he's on this song he's singing about going on tour and not wanting to leave his family. I was, you know, like I was reading up, I was doing a little research for this before the show, and apparently at this point in time, he and John Deacon were the only two members that had families or you know had children at this point. So going on tour was very tough for him. And that's what the song is about. I thought originally it was about, you know, being a young man and having to leave your home to find, you know, to go somewhere or to find yourself. Uh, let's see. I don't really have much to say about that one. Um, I guess we go straight to Don't Stop Me Now. This song is really infectious. And I thought it was infectious long before they started using it in commercials and various other things. It's... Um... It's a song that's completely written in the A major key, which is the happiest, most optimistic key. It's kind of funny that, you know, some of the songs in this album would have so much trouble with modern PC standards. This song is almost like, you know, what is the new generation, the the millennials? It's almost like their theme song. Don't Stop Me Now is, is at the moment probably the most famous the most well-regarded, most downloaded, uh, best-loved Queen song in the entire catalog. Really? Yeah, um, as of 2021, Don't Stop Me Now has now been downloaded more times than Bohemian Rhapsody. Wow, that's interesting, because I would have thought We Will Rock You or Another One Bites the Dust. or Wow, that's interesting. Well, good for you, millennials. It's, or, you know... Coming from us boomers, or are we boomers? I don't. Even, I don't even know what we are. We're Gen Xers. Well, we did grow up in the age of but really. But millennials idols, so. love "Don't Stop Me Now." 
But Don't Stop Me Now almost is like the the millennials theme song. It has like all of their qualities. It's it's up and coming. I'm coming out in Freddie's case more ways than one. And you know, it's it's his ultimate I'm at my peak. I'm not stopping for anybody. Don't try. That's interesting. That's interesting that you brought up. You know, I didn't realize that it had become quite an anthem for the the millennials or whoever the current group of young people are. Yeah, it's it's by far their favorite Queen song, which is funny because I believe it was released as a single, but it was never a huge hit in this country. It was most likely a hit overseas, but I don't care. I don't base what I like based on what's a hit or what's not. It's just a damn good song. It's a great song. It's I guess it was resurrected because of the commercial. Somebody saw potential in it, but it's it's definitely taken on a life of its own beyond that. And it is interesting also that that song is placed as the actual last real song on the album. Because, of course, there is one more track, but that track is more of that jazz, which is kind of a almost a reprise or rehash of the previous contents. Well, I, again, I did some research, and apparently Roger Taylor plays most of, does most of the instruments on this. I think the only thing he doesn't play is lead guitar. He's playing rhythm guitar, bass, drums, and is singing it. It's not his best song, but it's kind of a fun song. It's a kind of fun way to end the album. In the middle of the song, you get a bunch of sound clips from the previous songs that are masterfully edited together. And it, and it really sums up the album thusly. And on that note, the record ends. In a, in a very real sense, 70s Queen ends as well. It's kind of... A, it, jazz is the final curtain call for the first phase of, of Queen's development. We say goodbye to one era, and we look forward to a next. Um, Live Killers is, uh, what do you want to call it? Sort of like a, uh, what's the word? What is Live Killers? It's the live album. I think it was just something for them to put out for 1979, because they weren't planning to do a studio album that year, which is the case with a lot of live albums. I personally think it's a great live album. But I'm probably biased because, like I said earlier, that was the first Queen album I ever bought. I think I got it from the Columbia Record Club. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice. It also kind of works as like a greatest hits compilation in some ways because it has all the hits and it has most of the you know the significant studio um, album cuts, and it it sounds good. The one caveat, of course, is this being Queen. We really don't know how live this live album is, but it sounds live and it sounds good. From what I read, there are no overdubs on the record, but apparently each song is possibly stitched together from multiple live takes. In other words, they you know, would record it in different spots, and instead of just taking one song from a different concert, they would actually edit together, okay, let's take part one of, uh, you know, Night one in France will take another from part, you know night three in Houston or something like that. And that, and believe it or not, that's not an uncommon practice. That wasn't an uncommon practice on live albums back then and probably now. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, you want to you want to get not only the best takes but the best moments of each take. 
to really like showcase the band at its absolute best. What's interesting too is when I heard Live Killers on the um, on WCGY, when Freddie introduces Death on Two Legs, he goes, "This is about a bleep 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 bleep." So I thought, okay, he must have said something bad, so they bleeped it out, you know, so it wouldn't go over the air. Well, I get the album, and it turns out the bleeps were on the original record itself. And apparently it was about a former manager of theirs, and Freddie didn't have the nicest thing to say about him. No, it makes sense. I mean, artists have always been screwed by, you know, crafty managers and unscrupulous record executives, etc. <sighs> you know, say la vie. Yeah, and Death on Two Legs launches into a medley of, of songs where it ends up with... Um, Get Down, Make Love, and I know Bicycle Race is one of them, and you get little snippets of the songs. So, obviously, Queen knew that they couldn't, you know, reproduce certain aspects of their sound live, so interestingly enough, back then, they didn't use I don't think they used tapes or anything like that. They just would play them, they would just play the raw songs, and without all the studio trickery. Well, like Bohemian Rhapsody, they obviously can't reproduce the operatic section, so they basically bypass it and go to something else. Remember at Live Aid, um, at Live Aid, they only play the opening section of Bohemian Rhapsody, and then they go straight to Radio Gaga. Well, interestingly enough, on the Live Killers version, he opens up Bohemian Rhapsody by singing a little bit of Mustafa. He sings the opening line, you know, Mustafa, you know, Allah will pray for you. And then he goes right into the song. Now, this is the part. So so they they perform the verses. But when they get to the operatic section, they did something that was kind of controversial. And the critics raked them over the coals for. They would basically turn out the lights and play the studio version of the operatic middle section. Yeah, because I guess fans want to hear it. The band can't obviously reproduce it and on stage. So I guess that's the only way to include it. Either that or make it part of a medley like they did at Live Aid. And like I said before, this album <clears throat> opens with the fast live version of We Will Rock You, which is the, the first time, in fact, that's the first, believe it or not, that's the first version of We Will Rock You I ever heard. And, you know, it doesn't have the, it's it's just them doing it. And then later on at the end of the show, they do the standard version. Of course, they have to, you know, Roger Taylor has to kind of reproduce that percussion sound on the drums because you know that the original studio recording, that boom, 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 crash, is actually them stepping on floorboards and clapping. Yes, there are no drums on the original take. Drums as such. Live Killers is an album that I got. Actually, I've never owned it. That is the one original Queen release that I've never owned a copy of. I, for some reason, I never thought of them as a killer live band, even though I've seen Live Aid a million times. I think Live Killers era, they were a bit of a... I think they might have been a tighter live band in some respects. They, they certainly still had the rock edge to them. I mean, Queen always rocked, don't get me wrong. And they were great performers you know, throughout the 80s. And especially, you know, like in the mid-80s when they did Live Aid and then they did the the Magic Tour. But I think, again, you know, as jazz is their final studio record of the 70s, Live Killers is basically, you know, a live greatest hits, like you said, and it's a summation of that era. And it's kind of funny to think that at one point in time, there was no such thing as a Queen Greatest Hits album. 
Well, they were still very much in the process of creating hits to have on a greatest hits album, which by the time, you know, jazz and the game come around, they finally have enough of. Yes, because they would do the game after this, and then they would follow that up with uh, Flash Gordon and the Greatest Hits. But, you know, Flash Gordon is a movie soundtrack, so I tend not to think of that one when I think of their discography, although it's considered a Queen album by, by some people. It is, but it's predominantly a bunch of throwaway instrumentals that display in the background. And who wants to watch that movie? It's terrible. Oh, come on, Mark. It's fun. Anyhow, um, my final thoughts on jazz. Like I said, it, it does end the 70s on a high note. It summarizes where Queen have been in the 70s. You hear elements of all of the past personas that they've adopted you know you've got the heavy rock from the first album you've got you know the heavily layered arrangements from night at the opera era you've got a little bit of you know that sort of like bombastic grandstanding from news of the world you don't really have anything that looks forward to the 80s on this record so that's kind of why i consider this to be like there are ultimate 70s statement because it, it kind of perfects their 70s sound at a time when they're getting ready to discard it. Yeah, that's that's not a bad assessment. I would still rank Sheer Heart Attack and Night at the Opera over this, but I hear what you're saying. Fair enough. And so what are your final thoughts? I love this record, and I would rank it over Day at the Races, you know, News of the World, and people can say what they want. I don't care. I think it's a great record. I think it it's the final statement from the 70s, and it's just damn good queen. That's what it is. Fair enough. And on that note, I believe we uh, pretty much have reached the end of another fine episode of the Double K Super Show. I would agree with you on that, Mark. And since we've reached the end... I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Chris Karam. I'm Mark Dreamers Ball Konzorowski. And we will see you on the next episode of the Double K Super Show. Good night, all. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.